Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Sonia, and I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's program, Coping with Metastatic Triple Negative Breast Cancer. And today's program is actually being offered during Breast Cancer Awareness Month and um, actually uh, being offered a day after uh, Metastatic Breast Cancer Awareness Day. So um, it's really important that we offer this program because I know so many of you are living with metastatic triple negative breast cancer, and we want to offer something for you during this month. Now, today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and a triple negative breast cancer foundation, and I really want to thank them for their collaboration with us and for also making this program possible. Um, and uh, today's program also, um, we have many participants on the program. We have over 360 participants on the program today. And you come from all over the United States, from both urban, rural, and suburban areas. And we also have international participants from a number of countries, from Canada, India, Iraq, Israel, Laos, Pakistan, South Africa, Turkey, the United Kingdom, and Venezuela. So it's really a bit of a global call as well. And um, I do also want to acknowledge that this program is made possible by the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation, Celgene Corporation, and a grant from Genentech. I really want to thank them for their support to this program. Now, um, before we uh, introduce our speakers, um, I did want to ask, we're going to ask you just three polling questions. They're brief, um, they're yes, no, and so I'm going to start with the polling questions right now. And the first question is, I know the novel treatment approaches for metastatic triple negative breast cancer, and either yes or no. And then the second question is, I know the role of precision medicine in improving treatment decisions. Yes or no? And then the third question is, I know what to do to prepare for telehealth, telemedicine appointments to get the most out of these appointments. Yes or no? So I want to thank you all for participating in this brief poll. It really gives us an, an idea of a little bit of what you know coming into this program. And uh, thank you so much. Uh, and uh, so um, I'm now going to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Generosa Grana. Dr. Grana is Medical Director, MD Anderson Cancer Center at Cooper. Division Head, Hematology and Medical Oncology, the Cooper Health System, Professor of Medicine, Cooper Medical School at Rowan University. And Dr. Grana will be addressing updates on the treatment of metastatic triple negative breast cancer in the context of COVID-19, test, diagnostic testing and technologies, why they are so important, and the role of precision medicine in improving treatment decisions and novel treatment approaches. It's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Grana. Thank you so much, Dr. Messner. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, first, to give a small introduction, although most of you, all of you, uh, know a lot about uh, triple negative breast cancer, but triple negative breast cancer is a variant of breast cancer whose features are that it is estrogen receptor negative, progesterone receptor negative, and HER2 new negative. There is much more sophisticated testing that looks at basal features of a cancer and genomic profiling that can go into this, but in the terminology that we use in clinic, that is the, those are the three features uh, that we discuss or consider when discussing this diagnosis. It is more common in younger women, in African-American women, and particularly more common in women that carry a BRCA1 mutation. 
Triple negative disease accounts for 15% of all breast cancer, and the behavior tends to be more aggressive. It tends to be more advanced at time of presentation, slightly worse prognosis. Um, and when you have early stage disease, earlier recurrences are common, uh, more common in the first three years than they tend to be in the ER positive uh, population. So clearly a different subset of breast cancer. Metastatic triple negative breast cancer is by definition disease that has spread beyond the breast and the local lymphatics to areas such as bone, lymph nodes, lung, liver, or brain. In the United States, the majority of women uh, that have metastatic disease uh, have a prior diagnosis of breast cancer and then go on to develop metastatic disease. Therefore, they already have a cancer team that is guiding them on this journey, and it is that cancer team that is walking them through the process of testing uh, as they get diagnosed with metastatic disease. Somewhere around 15 to 20% of women uh, in other countries present, uh, I'm sorry, somewhere much higher numbers present uh, with metastatic disease at diagnosis. So uh, again, in the United States, because of early diagnosis, most of our patients present with early stage disease, fewer with metastatic, but in other countries, much more metastatic presentations. How is metastatic disease diagnosed? It's diagnosed with signs and symptoms of disease. Uh, disease uh, uh, that may come back in the breast or may show up as enlarged lymph nodes or uh, lymph nodes in other sites such as the neck, uh, the underarm area, skin nodules, or symptoms of disease that can include shortness of breath, uh, abdominal pain, abdominal symptoms such as fluid or ascites, bone pain, headache, again, generalized symptoms. Sometimes we pick up metastatic disease as laboratory abnormalities, a high calcium or a high laboratory test called an alkaline phosphatase or abnormalities on liver function studies. And sometimes we pick this up on imaging abnormalities. Um, oftentimes, it's a scan that's done for something else, uh, and we find evidence of metastatic disease in the lung, liver, bone, uh, pleural fluid, or other. Uh, we do not routinely follow early-stage breast cancer patients with scans or with tumor markers. They have never been shown to be helpful in uh, diagnosing recurrences earlier, and they are not recommended. But we do do that once a woman has a diagnosis of metastatic disease. What's the appropriate workup for someone who's got newly diagnosed metastatic disease, and, and what are our goals? First, we need to make a diagnosis because uh, it is very important, even in someone who has a history of breast cancer, that uh, we know what we're treating. Secondly, our workup uh, looks to assess the extent of disease. And third, our workup looks to determine, help us guide treatment planning. So make a diagnosis, assess extent of disease, and plan for treatments. First and most important, a biopsy should be done. Uh, it is important that we look at a distant site to prove that it is still breast cancer and not another malignancy or even a benign condition. There are plenty of women that had breast cancer and later developed primary lung cancer or developed uh, multiple myeloma or another malignancy. So it's very, very important with a, when a breast cancer patient has a new finding that we biopsy that area to confirm that it's metastatic breast. It's also very important that we repeat the estrogen, progesterone, and HER2 new status as they can change, less often in the triple negative setting, but still can change in the process of developing metastasis. So it's very important in our treatment planning that we know whether this cancer has reverted uh, its estrogen receptor status or its HER2 new status. Again, not often seen in the triple negative population. Third, from a biopsy standpoint, it's important to get tissue for more sophisticated testing that can aid us in planning of treatments. Um, you've all heard about genomic profiling or next-generation sequencing or precision medicine. All of those terms refer to obtaining a piece of tissue and having it analyzed, looking for genetic markers that can be used to guide treatment. Some laboratories that are out there doing this kind of testing include Foundation One, Keras, 
but there are other institutional uh, panels that can be done to achieve the same thing. So many institutions have their own in-house next generation sequencing capacity. And at the end of the day, it doesn't matter where the information comes from, but what matters is that we get that analysis done so we can guide treatment. If tissue is insufficient, because sometimes we get a small biopsy or we have pleural fluid that may not give us enough uh, material, one can also test blood for tumor-derived DNA, and there are several labs that have these liquid biopsies, as they're termed, that can give us the same or similar information that's still quite, quite good and can help us identify markers for treatment. What can we find um, in, in this material that can guide our treatment? We can find features that suggest that immunotherapy is of benefit. Uh, three particular entities can tell us that immunotherapy will be helpful. One is called PDL1 or programmed death ligand. One is called microsatellite instability or MSI. And the third is called tumor mutational burden, which is the amount of genetic alteration that we find in this tumor. All of those, any of those, are features that suggest that uh, immunotherapy uh, with agents such as uh, Tecentric or Keytruda may be effective. Uh, we may also find in the genomic profiling features that suggest that other drugs uh, could be effective, such as PARP inhibitors. Uh, if you find the BRCA1 or 2 mutation in the tumor, these may not be mutations that the patient has in their overall population. We don't think of these as women that are BRCA positive, but their cancers may have BRCA alterations, and those individuals may still be candidates for PARP inhibitors, agents such as Limparza and others. And finally, we may find markers that may suggest that novel drugs that are yet being studied uh, could be useful, drugs that are being used in other disease sites could be used in this or it may guide us in guiding a patient to a clinical trial because many clinical trials are now being done in a targeted fashion, and Dr. Tulaney is going to talk about this later. Uh, but again, uh, I look at the information that we get from this uh, next generation sequencing as guiding us both in identifying available treatments that we can use that may be effective, but also thinking about clinical trials. So we've done a biopsy. What comes next? Uh, Staging studies, staging studies to assess the extent of disease. Typically, we do a CT scan, chest, abdomen, pelvis, bone scan, and they really are very similar to a PET scan. So in some institutions, they do PET scan, and some insurances allow you to do PET. In some institutions, they do CT and bone scan, and the reality is that they can give us similar information. We sometimes, if we have inconclusive CT, will go to PET. An MRI of the brain is often done if there are symptoms. We do laboratory studies to assess organ function. And we do do tumor markers because if they're elevated, it can be followed and to help us assess response to therapy. These are proteins that are shed uh, by tumor, uh, including CA2729, CA153, CEA. In some institutions, in addition to these tumor markers, uh, people have been using circulating tumor cells. Again, I think in many settings, those are uh, somewhat still not tried and true. But that's how we assess the extent of disease. Now, before we go on to actual treatment, how about the impact of COVID-19? I look at COVID-19 more as a, an impact on early stage disease than I do on metastatic disease in terms of affecting our management. Uh, there were restrictions early on on elective surgeries leading to more use of preoperative chemotherapy for earlier cancers, smaller cancers that we might not have approached that way. Uh, and so that changed our pattern. Clinical trials at many institutions were put on hold uh, but again, this was mainly for, oftentimes for uh, early stage disease. It caused delayed diagnosis due to closures of mammography facilities and restrictions in access to primary care, and that's something whose impact we are yet going to see in the future. Fortunately, however, most of this has been reversed. Most centers across the country are fully back in operation. Uh, most institutions have gone really out of their way to make sure services are safe, access is available, and we're focusing not just on the safety of our patients, but on the safety of our staff so that they can provide adequate services. So most institutions have a full complement of services. 
I actually believe that our teams are working harder than ever to deal with the sense of isolation and the sense of vulnerability that COVID-19 has instilled in some of our patients. So I find that we're communicating more, we're adding more resources uh, because we are limiting visitors still in some cases and, and it has not gone away. Treatment of metastatic breast cancer. By definition, uh, no benefit with hormonal drugs and no benefit from the HER2-new-based therapies such as Herceptin or Progetta, but it is very responsive to a variety of chemotherapy agents. The choice of chemotherapy depends on what drugs the patient received previously. If they got adriamycin previously, it limits how much of that we can use again, and we will not go with that first. The treatment depends on residual side effects, such as neuropathy that a patient may have from prior treatment. And it should also involve patient wishes. Uh, There has to be a real discussion about goals of care when you're defining a patient's treatment, because some women are very clear that they don't want to lose their hair again. Some people are very focused on the fact that they don't want to go with uh, intravenous therapy first. So there has to be a lot of discussion about this. Some examples of currently ongoing treatment. Uh, if a patient is PDL1 positive and has not had recent taxanes, uh, a commonly used regimen today is a Braxane plus a drug called Tecentric, which is an immunotherapy, and that's been shown to be very effective. With toxicity, that's quite interesting. I think uh, drugs like Tecentric and Keytruda have taught oncologists a lot about managing novel toxicity. So it's important when you're on these drugs, we give patients little um, uh, cards that tell them I'm on immunotherapy. So if they go to the emergency room, uh, the team knows that these drugs are different and we have different expectations of toxicity. If a patient has a high MSI or a high tumor mutation burden, a pembrolizumab or Keytruda alone or with chemotherapy as a partner can be very effective. A variety of chemotherapy agents are usually given as single agents and are quite effective. We tend to use combinations uh, uh, more when there's extensive disease and we need to get urgent control. We tend not to use combinations often uh, early on because they're more toxic and don't change the overall picture. Uh, So again, it is the patient and the team and the extent of disease that guide the selection of drugs. Examples of some active drugs in this disease include capecitabine or Zolota, which is the only oral chemotherapy that we have available to us, and then a whole uh, array of intravenous drugs that are very effective, carboplatin, particularly for the BRCA-mutated cancers, Gemzar, uh, Doxel, which is an anthracycline-like adriamycin, Halivin, Ixabepilone, a whole array of drugs that can be used and can have significant effectiveness. There's a novel drug that was recently approved uh, for metastatic triple negative breast cancer, sasetusumab govitecan or Trotilvi, which has been on the market for probably six months. And again, a different toxicity profile, but very effective. So we have a significant number of options, and the options uh, that are selected depend on the patient, their wishes, and their overall health. In addition to treatment of the disease with chemotherapy, we also use adjuncts uh, for other reasons. So, for example, bone-directed therapy is used if there's bone involvement. Prolia or Zomata are the two agents that are on the market. Radiation can be used for symptom management. Liver-directed therapy with agents such as Y90 or uh, radiofrequency ablation can be uh, used if there's limited disease in the liver. So, again, these are things that we do in addition to the therapies that we have available. My message to my patients when they have a diagnosis of triple negative breast cancer is to always look for clinical trial opportunities because it's a great way to get access to novel therapies that may otherwise not be available to them in the standard fashion. So you lose nothing by participating in a clinical trial, and you may gain a tremendous amount. And with that, I'll stop. Thank you thank so you much. So, oh, thank you so much, Dr. Grana. That was really outstanding and just wonderful, uh, you know, just overview of, of uh, metastatic triple negative breast cancer, its treatments, and um, and just really um, how responsive it is to particular treatments. So thank you so much. And I know that there will be questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you so much. And our next speaker 
is uh, is Dr. Sarah Talani, Dr. Talani's Associate Director, Susan F. Smith, Center for Women's Cancers, Associate Director, Clinical Research Breast, Breast Oncology, Senior Physician, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, and Assistant Professor of Medicine, Harvard Medical School. And Dr. Slaney will be addressing clinical trial updates, how research offers more treatment options for metastatic triple negative breast cancer. Very important to highlight this. Um, tips to cope and to cope with and control symptoms, side effects, and pain. Specific guidelines to prepare for telehealth, telemedicine appointments to get the most out of each of your appointments. And key questions to ask your healthcare team, including quality of life concerns. It really is my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Talani. No, thank you so much. Um, so that was an excellent overview to start us off by uh, Dr. Grana. Um, and, you know, I think certainly one of the messages that came out is there are lots of very effective treatment options for triple negative breast cancer, but there are also very exciting opportunities in terms of new novel um, agents that are in development. And I think when thinking about these, certainly the question comes up is, you know, when do I think about participating in a clinical trial? What are clinical trials? What are the different types of trials? Um, and should I participate in one? Um, and so I think what I thought would be helpful is maybe just to provide an overview of the different types of clinical trials that exist, because this is a question that I get often in clinic to really understand the different types of trials that, that there are, um, and then talk about why someone may choose to participate in a clinical trial. So maybe just as a bit of background, you know, um, there's a development process that drugs go through. So usually the way I think of it is um, sometimes we get some very exciting signals in the laboratory that suggest that a new drug may be particularly effective, for example, in triple negative disease. And so initially that drug sometimes is tested in cell lines in a dish and then often goes into testing in animal models. And, you know, if it looks exciting and has promise, then we start thinking about moving it into clinical trials into people. And when a clinical trial is first done in a person, the very first type of trial that is usually done is a trial that's called a phase one trial. And so this type of trial is really testing often a new drug. It's trying to determine what dose to give of the drug, and it's looking to understand the side effects of the drug. And the way these trials are often done is they're done in little cohorts of people. So we usually enroll a few people, see how that particular dose does, what side effects we see, and if it looks tolerable, um, then we move on to another dose where we usually are escalating the dose and enroll three more people and then follow them for a period of time. And if people are all doing well, we enroll three more and so forth. So you know, there's what they call a dose escalation um, to the phase one trial, really trying, again, to determine the correct dose of the drug. Once the correct dose is determined, we often then do something we call an expansion cohort where we test a bunch of patients at that dose that is thought to be the recommended dose, make sure that the signal that we saw is correct, that it does seem to be the right dose, and that we really can understand the safety and toxicities of the drug at that dose. And if when we look at all the data that comes out of the phase one trial, that it looks like a well-tolerated drug that has a promising signal for efficacy, then the drug often moves to what we call a phase two trial. And in a phase two trial, the goal is to determine the efficacy. And so sometimes those are what we call single arm phase two trials where we just have one treatment strategy that we're exploring and all patients get enrolled to that particular treatment. And if um, that looks like there's very good activity in that phase two trial, then it often moves to what we call a phase three trial where the new drug, let's call the new drug drug X, Drug X is compared to what is considered to be the standard treatment approach in that setting, and if drug X is better, then it usually goes on to get FDA approval. But I think the lesson to take away from this is that it is a long road to go from a drug getting developed you know, in the lab to getting to be a drug that is often FDA approved. And there are lots of things that have been put in place to accelerate this process where we are now seeing approvals earlier than just from a phase three trial. And but I think, nonetheless, one reason I think sometimes it's 
you know, important to think about clinical trials is that it really gives you access to these new drugs while they're in development before they become FDA approved. And again, because sometimes it does take time for these drugs to become approved agents, it is a way to get access um, earlier. And so I think that's certainly one reason to think about clinical trials is it expands the number of potential treatment options that you have available to you, again, by putting a new drug um, into your list of treatment options. And so certainly one reason to think about it. I think another reason to think about trials is that sometimes we're, you know, we're moving towards trying to develop drugs that are more targeted than they used to be. You know, I think many years ago, a lot of the treatments that we had were really focused on developing chemotherapy drugs, but now we have more targeted strategies. And I think the goal of many of these targeted strategies is not only to be a more efficacious therapy because we can sort of target where the, you know, what's triggering the cancer cell to grow, but also potentially decrease toxicity. Because if we're able to deliver, for example, chemotherapy in a targeted way, then maybe the side effect profile will be better than some of our more traditional drugs had been. And I think certainly an overarching, you know, reason to also think about trial participation is it is also a way to help others and certainly will lead, hopefully, to improvements in cancer care for all patients, uh, and really you'd be helping future generations of patients moving forward. But are there reasons maybe not to participate in a clinical trial? Certainly not everything uh, points to all positives. There are always, you know, potential um, reasons to think about why it may not be a good idea to participate. And, you know, I think one challenge is that when some drugs are very new, particularly when some drugs may not have been tested in lots of people before, we may not know all the side effects that could develop from a new drug. You know, we too are learning what those side effects are when we're starting new drugs in, in clinical trials. And so one challenge can be is, you know, if you are participating in a trial where there's not a lot of experience, then, you know, the physicians may not be aware of all the potential side effects of that agent. Uh, and so, again, it may not be always an expected thing that we can anticipate. Sometimes also clinical trials do have more frequent visits, and, you know, so that can be challenging, particularly if you live a distance away from the place where the trial is being conducted. Um, and so, again, something to just keep in mind from a practical aspect is this is something that, you know, you can practically participate in just given the requirements of the study. And then finally, you know, while I think a lot of these clinical trials are very exciting and offer lots of very good new treatment approaches that have a lot of promise, the challenge is that the new treatment may not always work. Um, and so, you know, sometimes you may participate in a trial you may put yourself through more frequent visits, but in the end, you know, if it didn't work, obviously then it becomes a very frustrating endeavor. And so, you know, I think the truth is it's not always that we can guarantee, obviously, that the trial agent is going to, to work. But I think overall, you know, certainly what I've seen is that we are moving towards developing targeted drugs that do seem to have a lot of promise. Um, certainly, Dr. Grana touched upon a couple of these. Um, one example that she provided is a new drug called sasituzumab covitekin, which is an antibody drug conjugate where we're really delivering chemotherapy in a targeted way. And so I think, again, a movement towards improvement where when this drug was compared to standard chemotherapy was superior to standard chemotherapy, really teaching us that maybe with targeted delivery of chemo, we can do better. And so I think some clinical trials are trying to build upon this. Some are trying to say, well, can we add on drugs to these promising new therapies to make them work better? So, for example, if you take that drug, sofetuzumab govotecan, for example, there are trials ongoing adding other drugs to it, such as a oral drug called a PARP inhibitor or drugs like immunotherapy agents, and such as adding, for example, pembrolizumab to that drug. Um, and so they're what I think of as like add-on trials, where you take a standard drug that seems to be highly effective and you add on an extra drug and see if it makes that drug work better. And usually there's a lot of reasons we've chosen to add one drug to that other drug, meaning that we've tested things usually in the laboratory that suggest that the combination may be better than either drug alone. And so, you know, 
from my perspective, those are trials where, you know, you're guaranteed to get the standard drug, and sometimes you get randomized to get the extra drug. Um, and so, you know, there isn't a huge loss from participating in the trial in the sense that you would have gotten the standard drug anyway, and so maybe now you get the opportunity to get an add-on drug. Um, not all trials are like that, though. Sometimes they're more of a substitution, um, so you're using a novel agent in place of something else. So, again, you can see that there are lots of different clinical trials, um, and, again, I think lots of promising drugs. Um, you know, Dr. Grana mentioned that currently the only standard oral chemotherapy that we have is capecitabine, also known as Olota, but there are lots of promising oral drugs. So, for example, there's an oral chemotherapy that is a taxane chemotherapy that's called tesataxel that looks very promising that's being studied for triple negative breast cancer in combination with immunotherapy um, and even being studied alone as a single-agent chemotherapy for patients. Um, you know, it's associated with less hair loss than we've traditionally seen with taxol, less neuropathy. So it does seem to have a lot of advantages potentially. Um, so again, I think you can see we're also looking at substituting drugs with potentially less toxic treatment approaches as well. So, you know, I think in general it's very important to have a discussion with your oncologist um, whenever there may be a discussion about changing treatment. Um, so at that juncture, it's always important to think about, well, what are my standard treatment approaches right now? And then alternatively, are there any clinical trial options right now? I think a common question I get is, well, how do I know what the clinical trial options are? Is Are there ways I can research that? And, you know, I think the most important thing is to always directly talk to your oncologist about this and feel very comfortable asking about trials. And if they don't have a trial at their site, they can often help guide you to potentially trials at other locations. There are online tools that one can use. Um, there's one through clinicaltrials.gov that has um, trials across the entire country um, that you can search for. I will say, however, though, sometimes it is a little complicated. Uh, even I, when I look at clinicaltrials.gov, sometimes have challenges uh, trying to exactly sort out um, what trial makes sense for a particular patient, just because you really have to search quite carefully to look at various criteria to, to figure things out. And so while I think these are great tools, I think the bottom line is a discussion with your oncologist is always the most helpful one in trying to strategize about the next treatment step. So another area that we were hoping to cover um, today was to also think about how best to work through new symptoms as they develop. Obviously, it's always important to work through new treatment strategies and thinking about new drugs um, as we need them and, and think about clinical trials. But I think most importantly is to make sure that symptoms are always controlled along every step of the way, and um, whether that's symptoms that may be related to the underlying cancer or potentially symptoms that are rising as side effects from the treatment that are ongoing. And, you know, I think the most important thing, again, here is always to mention any new symptoms to your oncologist, because I think there are now so many good strategies that we have in place to help deal with side effects that develop from treatments and to help with controlling any symptoms that could be arising from the underlying cancer. And so I think, again, without you know, getting into specifics, I think, again, very important to have those uh, honest discussions with your oncologist. There are also other people that can help. And so I think one thing that I've learned along the way and, and one thing that we do at our institutions, we often will involve other specialists. So sometimes, for example, we have pain and palliative care specialists who work with us to help with controlling pain and new symptoms as they arise, and they do an outstanding job in working in conjunction with us through uh, taking care of our patients. And so, again, I never hesitate to consider um, also considering a pain and palliative care consultation along the way um, in combination with your oncologist. And then I think, you know, we touched upon some of the challenges of COVID right now, and I think one of the things that has arisen during COVID-19 is the onset of telemedicine. So this is something that I think is new to physicians uh, and to patients. And, you know, I think personally I have found this to be a tremendous asset 
And, you know, I have many patients who have come, come generally from a far distance to get treatment. And I think having telehealth interspersed through their care has made quality of life better for many of my patients, not always having to come in in person for every visit. That being said, I think that there are some things that are better addressed in person than they are addressed through telehealth. And so, um, you know, again, as a physician, we're always trying to guide what types of appointments should be made in particular situations. But I think as a patient, there are lots of things, I think, that can help when preparing for telemedicine visits. I think first thing is to make sure that the technology actually works. I will say there have been countless times where either I or the patient hasn't had the technology working to its best um, at, at the start of the visit. And I think, you know, for example, our institution uses a Zoom platform to do video um, visits. And I've had plenty of patients who weren't able to get the Zoom downloaded prior to their visit, had trouble getting onto the site, and, you know, weren't sure what link to use to open. And so I think making sure you have all the things that you need downloaded, make sure you have the link well in advance of your appointment, and usually checking on those things perhaps the day before the appointment is very important because, you know, it's very stressful um, on you to think of trying to sort through that at the last minute when trying to log on um, to a visit. I think also sometimes one thing that I found has been nice for many patients is you can invite other people into your visit. So, you know, I have patients who have family members that, you know, may not be in the same location as them. So maybe they're in Boston, but their family member is in California. Well, they can, you know, invite their family member if they want who's in California to join into their telemedicine visit. And to me, that has been a great asset for patients. So, you know, oftentimes they want to bring their family to visits, um, but this allows for a family to come with them. And, and particularly during COVID, where many centers have restricted family participation in the clinic and in the infusion center, telemedicine does allow for that very nicely. And so I think that's certainly something to keep in mind. And if you want other people to be part of your visit to make sure that they're prepared to be able to join in and have the technology they need to also be able to log on. I think additionally, it's important to be prepared for the visit to make sure you have all your questions lined up ahead of time. You know, obviously it's easy to forget. Um, you know, if you have something in the back of your mind, maybe yesterday, sometimes you forget uh, in the moment um, when discussions sometimes go in other directions. So always have a list of things that you want to make sure get addressed uh, during the visit um, so that, you know, you're able to, to get through them. Um, and I think, again, you know, making sure that before you hang up that all your questions have been addressed and answered and that you know how to also set up the follow-up visit because, you know, at least at our institution, it used to be that, you know, you see your doctor, then you go check out and you get your appointment made. Well, now you're on a telehealth visit, and so that's a little different. You're not going to the checkout desk. And so just to make sure you have a discussion with the person, uh, the physician um, that you're seeing, that you know how to make sure you have follow-up uh, appropriately set up, because uh, again, it's a little different with telehealth. So I think we're learning a lot about how to optimize this, and it, it definitely has been a work in progress. Um, but I think, again, some tips can, can help you get through it and, and have it to be the most efficient uh, visit for you. And um, so I think, you know, that really concludes what I was hoping to, to touch upon. And certainly at the end, I know we'll turn back and, and have time for some uh, questions. But thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Delaney. That was so excellent and very comprehensive, really, um, in covering all these issues that I know of great concern to everybody on the call. And there will be time for questions. So I know we get lots of questions at that point, too. Thank you. Thanks so much. Um, and our next speaker uh, is uh, is is Ms. Haley Dinnerman. Um, Ms. Dinnerman is a lawyer and she is the co-founder and executive director of the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation. And she um, actually really um, is responsible for today's program in terms of accessing the support for it and supporting it herself in addition to so many other triple negative uh, breast cancer programs and initiatives. Uh, you'll hear more about that from the next speaker as well. Um, and she will be addressing Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation's free conferences and programs. It's my great pleasure to turn this program to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Dinner. Thank you so much for that introduction, Dr. Messner. 
Um, first, I want to take a moment to thank our partners at Cancer Care, my fellow presenters, for the excellent overview of metastatic triple negative breast cancer, including the updates on research, treatment approaches, and clinical trials. It goes without saying that TNBC-specific medical research is extremely important to our foundation. We support research at leading medical institutions, and we work very hard to inform you about any new developments in the area, including clinical trials. We also have expert um, scientific bloggers at the major medical conferences like ASCO, AACR, and SABCS. Um, they are there to provide our community with insights and updates on new and emerging research and treatment options, even now when the conferences have gone virtual. So if you're interested in receiving these updates, please be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Today's teleconference is one of many programs we offer. All of our programming is specifically designed to address the needs of the TNBC community. Our numerous educational brochures and fact sheets, which include specific information about metastatic TNPC, are available in print or as free downloads from our website, tnpcfoundation.org. We also have a free clinical trials matching service um, that is, again, tailored just to metastatic TNPC. It's less overwhelming to navigate than other matching services because it's limited specifically to metastatic triple negative breast cancer, and you can find it on our website. Um, additionally, our metastatic TNBC discussion forum, which is also available online at tnbcfoundation.org, allows you to connect with others in our TNBC community who are living with metastatic disease or caring for a loved one with metastatic disease. You can use the forums to ask questions about treatment, about how to manage side effects, and anything else related to metastatic triple negative breast cancer. But most importantly, our discussion forums offer consistent support. So if you aren't currently registered for the forums, you should definitely consider joining them. You can even join anonymously if you like, and I can't stress enough how helpful they've been to so many women and families. Beyond that, I just want to encourage you to join us for two upcoming programs. The TNBC Foundation is once again partnering with Living Beyond Breast Cancer to bring you a full and robust TNBC-specific program during the fall conference. This year's conference will be virtual, but it will include all the programming you've come to expect, including medical updates on TNBC, support groups, um, TNBC community meetup, and a lot more. Um, you can register online at tnbcfoundation.org or lbbc.org. Also, the foundation is hosting its first virtual gala on October 27th at 7 p.m. Eastern. There's no cost to attend, and we truly hope you can join us. You can learn more about our virtual conference or any of our other programs at tnbcfoundation.org. I know everyone is very eager to get to the Q&A and um, to the other speakers. So with that in mind, I'll end here. Thank you all for joining us. Dr. Messner, I'll now turn the program back to you. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Dinneman, and thank you so much for your enormous commitment to this, um, to really advancing um, services, programs, um, and research um, available to people with triple negative breast cancer foundation. So that's a lifetime commitment of yours, and I've known you a long time, and uh, it's impressive. So thank you so much. Um, and our next speaker is Ms. Lauren Chatelian. Ms. Chatelian is an oncology social worker, and she's our Women and Children's Program Manager at Cancer Care. And she'll be addressing how to find the financial, emotional, and social supports to cope with triple negative breast cancer, practical strategies to cope with metastatic triple negative breast cancer, and triple negative breast cancer foundation services and helpline. It's my pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Chatelian. Thank you so much, Dr. Mesner. My role at Cancer Care includes providing supportive services to individuals and families impacted by a triple negative breast cancer diagnosis. The Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation and Cancer Care have partnered together to ensure that those diagnosed with TNBC have access to free psychosocial services and support. The Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation Helpline, which is generously funded by the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation, provides callers with access to comprehensive services. These comprehensive services include case management, counseling and support groups, educational workshops, publications, and limited financial assistance. 
by calling the TMBC helpline, individuals are connected with an oncology social worker aware of the physical, emotional, and practical challenges that may arise when diagnosed with TMBC. There are many aspects of a triple negative breast cancer diagnosis that could be addressed throughout psychosocial supportive services. Working one-on-one -on -one with an oncology social worker through individual counseling can offer a space to express one's feelings, emotions, and concerns. By calling our helpline, one of our social workers can help navigate ways to seek support services. Also connecting with a social worker or patient navigator at your treatment center could be helpful in exploring support services available to you. Individuals may choose to supplement existing social networks by joining a support group. Joining a support group can be a way of connecting with others going through a similar experience who may understand what you may be going through. Being a member in a support group can offer the opportunity to speak with others, gather and provide support, as well as obtain information. Being a member in a support group with others who have been diagnosed with TNBC can be extremely helpful in hearing how others are coping with this diagnosis. Cancer Care offers specific TNBC national online support groups, which are moderated by oncology social workers. You can register for an online support group through cancercare.org by selecting Our Services, then Support Groups. You'll be able to explore all of the group offerings through Cancer Care on this page. The Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation is also offering virtual webinars and meet and greets to connect with others diagnosed with TNBC, as well as TNBC talk forums. You can find more information about these offerings at tnbcfoundation.org. It is wonderful to be able to connect with others virtually or online as many people may be feeling increased isolation during this pandemic, COVID-19. People diagnosed with metastatic triple negative breast cancer may experience practical and financial concerns throughout one's treatment, especially during COVID-19. Unfortunately, financial concerns may be a source of continued stress. When diagnosed and throughout treatment, it may be helpful to discuss any financial concern with your medical providers. It may also be helpful to connect with a social worker, patient navigator, as well as the financial department at the treatment center to see if there are any financial options available to you. Please know that if you are encountering financial hardships, there are organizations that may be able to help you. Cancer Care's case management services are offered nationally to patients, post-treatment survivors, and caregivers affected by cancer. We offer a short-term, strength-based approach to case management where the social worker will work with the client in connecting them to some of these resources, referrals, and possible financial assistance. Navigating a metastatic triple negative breast cancer diagnosis can be stressful and emotionally difficult. In addition to individualizing group support I mentioned earlier, self-care and relaxation practices may be helpful during this challenging time as well. This could include journaling, yoga, meditation, or mindfulness, even listening to music or spiritual practices. If possible and safe to do so, maybe connecting with nature, um, the outdoors, going on a hike, or taking a walk around your neighborhood while adhering to social distancing. Another suggestion if you are feeling overwhelmed is taking a deep breath for a quick reset. A breathing technique um, that I have found useful is called um, box breathing or four square breathing, where someone would breathe in for four seconds, hold for four seconds, release for four, and then pause at the end of the breath for four seconds. Just a quick and easy um, breathing technique that may be useful throughout your day. Self-care is defined as the practice of taking an active role and protecting one's own well-being, particularly during periods of stress. This varies person to person. Continue to discover what works for you. And this may also change over time. Continue to speak to loved ones and explore ways to relieve these challenging feelings and emotions. Also, if you are interested in learning more about the support services the Triple Negative Breast Cancer Foundation and Cancer Care offer, I would encourage you to call the helpline, our Triple Negative Breast Cancer Helpline at 877-880-8622. We are here to offer you support and of course look forward to hearing from you. It has been such a pleasure to be a part of this very informative program today. 
Thank you for your attention and the opportunity to speak. And I'll now go ahead and turn our program back to Dr. Mesner. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, um, Ms. Italian. That was really outstanding. And I know there'll be questions for you during the during the Q&A and just a wonderful uh, um, uh, you know, tips for everybody on this call. So thank you so much in terms of coping. Thank you. Um, now, before we take the questions, we just have um, – <clears throat> We just have uh, just a few more questions for you to answer polling questions to see um, uh, to see um, to assess what you've maybe learned on the program today. So I'm going to start with the first question for those of you who are live streaming, um, and for those of you who are not, you'll be getting this um, when you get um, an email from us for the evaluation after the call. As a result of this workshop, I am more aware of the novel treatment approaches for metastatic triple negative breast cancer. So you can see it's yes or no. And then the next question is, <clears throat> as a result of this workshop, I better understand the role of precision medicine in improving treatment decisions, yes or no. And the final question, which is a, um, a drop-down bunch of questions, or you can you can um, take all that apply, or you can just go ahead and um, uh, say all of the above or some of the above. Um, as a result of this workshop, I have learned guidelines to prepare for telehealth telemedicine appointments to get the most out of them. Please check all that apply. Scheduled my telehealth telemedicine appointment. Prepared a list of my important questions ahead of my telehealth telemedicine appointment. Invited someone I trust to be present during the telehealth telemedicine appointment. Confirm with my doctor's office how to connect to my telehealth telemedicine appointment. And be sure I have the phone computer set up for my telehealth telemedicine appointment. And you can either click all of the above or you can just click the ones that apply. Well, thank you all for participating in this, and now we're going to take questions. I really want to thank you all. It's very helpful to us to um, to have your responses to these questions, so I thank you for your time with that. Um, and now we have questions for our speakers, so I'm going to ask um, that all of our speakers be brought on board um, by Sonia, and then, Sonia, if you could explain to the audience how to queue up for questions. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then one on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking ask a question. Again, ladies and, and gentlemen, to ask a question, please press star then one. And we have a question from one of our um, online participants, um, and this is for Dr. Grana. What was the name of a novel drug that Dr. Grana mentioned? Uh, I mentioned a couple, so I mentioned the Trotel V, T R O D E L V Y, uh, which is the new drug that just got approved uh, not long ago for triple negative breast cancer. That drug goes by Sasatusumab Gavatican. Uh, and then I mentioned the two immunotherapy drugs, uh, Tecentric uh, and Keytruda. Uh, those are their trade names as immunotherapy agents that can be combined with chemotherapy and used in women that either express that PD-L1 protein uh, or have some of the other features that uh, highlight effectiveness of immunotherapy. Excellent. Thank you. We have a question from one of our another online participant about it's a, a question about diet, um, and f uh, for Dr. Talani, um, the high fat keto diet is very popular these days. But the WIN study indicates a high fat diet may worsen outcomes with a hormone negative cancer. Are clinics addressing this in any of their standard protocol recommendations? Thank you. Yeah, no, it's an excellent question, and, you know, I think we have lots of questions with regard to what is the optimal diet, and particularly when one is living with, you know, a hormone receptor negative breast cancer, and the truth is we don't have a very good answer to this, uh, particularly in the metastatic setting. There have been several studies that have been done looking at um, diet and exercise interventions, and, you know, I think as you're noting there are some conflicting results. And so, you know, I will say that in general, I tend to recommend a low-fat, high-fiber diet to most of my patients and to increase uh, aerobic-level activity. 
um, as much as one can. Um, and, you know, there are actually continue to be trials ongoing uh, to address this. Um, but I don't think that there is, you know, unfortunately, a perfect dietary answer uh, to give because, again, we, we have lots of studies that are ongoing um, and, and have prior trials where the data is somewhat conflicting. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and so another question from one of our um, – so I hope that was helpful, and I, and I hope that you'll take that question also back to your healthcare team, all of you, the questions that, of course, you ask today. Um, the information you get, or even during the call itself, please take that information back to treating healthcare team, um, since they know you the best and um, they may be able to help you as well. Um, and this question is uh, for Dr. Grana. Um, I was diagnosed um, with metastatic uh, triple negative breast cancer in June 2020, liver, lungs, metastinum. My oncology team has told me that we would only do a biopsy if treatment isn't working. So far, Abraxane and Tecentric have shown reduction in size of METs and many METs resolved. Should I push for a biopsy even though treatment is currently helping? I am in Ontario, Canada. If you could address this question more in a general way, Dr. Grana, um, that perhaps would help um, the participant sure. asking the question, so but also... Sure. So what I don't know is if your team did anything like a liquid biopsy. So in some settings, uh, we can order liquid biopsies to check for the expression of markers that would get uh, Tocentric approved. So I don't know. They may have done that. Again, I do see a value in a biopsy uh, initially to confirm the diagnosis, number two, to run some of these more sophisticated tests. If you've already started treatment, I don't know that I would bother now, especially if the drugs are working, where it may be useful to do either a biopsy or um, another liquid biopsy, if that's what they've done, is at time of progression. So should these drugs, and hopefully they'll work for a long time or forever, but should these drugs not work or stop working, it would be very appropriate to biopsy to do those next more sophisticated tests. And I'm fully aware that not every country has the same resources and not every country has the same philosophy about this. So take keep that in mind. And Dr. Gardner, we just had another question, and if you would just, um, one, what is the difference between a liquid biopsy and a tissue biopsy for some So a tissue biopsy is when you take a piece of a, of a specimen, whether it be a liquid from a fluid collection in the lung where you spin down cells and you send the cell block, uh, or you take a piece of a biopsy of a liver or an, a lymph node, um, and that material is sent either to an outside lab for this next-generation sequencing or for an in-house lab to do the same thing. So you're actually testing tumor. You're testing cancer cells uh, for alterations that can guide therapy. A liquid biopsy is basically using similar technology, but it's looking at DNA, not actual cancer cells per se, but pieces of DNA that are shed in the circulation that can be harvested and, and tested for. So it's called the tumor-derived DNA. Uh, some people look at circulating tumor cells, but it's the concept that you're looking at something that's present in the bloodstream uh, rather than from a biopsy. And if you're successful, not all attempts to do that testing in the blood are successful, but if you're successful, it can be very reliable. Excellent. Thank you. And um Final question for Ms. Chatelian. Um, uh, a couple of people have asked if you could repeat that relaxation exercise that you suggest, the breathing exercise that you suggest, which might be a nice way to con conclude the program as well. So, Sure. Yeah, of course. Um, I actually, it's, um, it's pretty quick, and, and I find that some people like to do it a, a few times throughout the day. Um, it's called either, um, some people may refer to it as box breathing or four square breathing. So that would be you would breathe in, so inhale um, for four seconds, and then you would hold that um, for four seconds. You know, if, if you're uncomfortable or not, you know, you're breathing or not feeling well, um, definitely adjust this to what, what works best for you. Um, release that breath for four seconds and then pause kind of at the like the base of that breath for four seconds to kind of um, 
can help to maybe ground us and, and just kind of feel more like an even keel. Um, and, and that can be done, you know, a few times in a row or, or throughout the day. Um, but I hope that's helpful. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I want to thank all of our speakers. This has been really a phenomenal call. Um, we could go on for quite some time, but of course, we had said this would be an hour program. And so um, so we. I know there are many more questions that you all have. And you also do have, of course, your healthcare team to ask further questions of and also um, to call the um, the uh, triple negative helpline at 877 triple negative uh, helpline at 877-880-8622, and you'll be getting that information from us. As we conclude the program today, um, I would not want any one of you to feel that you're alone in in coping with metastatic triple negative breast cancer. Um, you've heard of a lot of resources for each of you on today's program. You'll be getting an evaluation after this program, um, and um, and that evaluation will provide additional resources for you. Um, and in addition to the triple negative helpline, we also have various services that offered at, at Cancer Care as well, so that we want you to take advantage of them. And particularly in this age of um, really people do feel a bit more isolated, more alone, because of social distancing, of course. And so we want you to know that although Sometimes you're not obviously often not able to meet with the people you really care about in person because of, of the social distancing uh, regulations that we have in place. Um, that we do have all sorts of other services that are available, all sorts of technology, the phone, and other types of high tech programs that we're doing today. The these uh, teleconferences, webcasts, also of course the um, Zoom calls that were mentioned. So there are many other programs that are offered to all of you um, that, um, depending on your technology, all of which bring you in touch with other people. So please be aware of that. And uh, um, we want you to know that you are connected to a lot of, lot of resources for you. So I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.